We live in a world that is facing one of its biggest challenges in living memory. The coronavirus pandemic has devastating potential as it sweeps across the globe. To fight this virus and slow its spread, we've had to change almost everything about how we live our lives. In Coronavirus Examined, we're talking to experts from the University of Sheffield to explore the different ways in which coronavirus is changing our world and the way we live. I'm Alicia Shepherd, and welcome to Coronavirus Examined. Today, I'll be talking to Professor Richard Bentall and Dr. Jilly Gibson-Miller from our Department of Psychology. Both are experts in clinical psychology and behavioural change. In this episode, we're going to discuss the suspected rise of anxiety and depression amongst the population since the lockdown began, and the potential impacts this can have on our behaviours. Are you recording on your phone, Jilly? Yeah. Okay, so we've been trying to find a way to get a full picture of the social, economic and psychological consequences of this unprecedented event. Um, And our primary question is, how is their mental health affected by the epidemic? But we have lots of other questions as well, which is about how they're adjusting to the epidemic in terms of their health behaviours and how all that is influenced by various psychological characteristics and uh, also their knowledge and understanding of what's happening in the end of the COVID crisis. Um, and I should just say that the reason for trying to take this kind of full picture in this way is because you could think of an epidemic as having two components, really. One is the actual epidemic itself, the, uh, the health effects of a virus passing through the population sometimes with tragic consequences. But there's also all the knock-on effects, the economic effects and the social effects and the psychological effects. And these themselves carry a terrible burden for some people. And that burden needs to be understood if we're going to help people, but also if we're going to recover as a nation once this is all over. But the other thing to say about it is that it's known that the way that people behave in a pandemic can affect the pandemic itself, can affect the spread of the virus. So the extent to which people do actually observe social distancing rules, for example. We we designed this survey before um, Boris Johnson um, announced the lockdown. OK, so um, we were interested in um, behaviours that would um, either prevent or or um, actually maintain the, the spread of the virus. So we looked at um, social distancing, which was then it wasn't isolation. Then it was um, things like not going out to essential meetings, maybe working from home, keeping your distance from people. And we also looked at maintaining hygienic practices so the extent to which people were hand washing more frequently and using tissues and cleaning surfaces in their home that sort of thing those are the sort of key behaviors that we were looking at that would um, transmit the virus Um, so like like Richard said actually you know human behavior is the thing that is going to be going to spread this virus and um, the course and the spread of it um, will be determined by how we behave. So that was why we we thought it was an important thing to measure. And so over time, we'll be able to see how people are changing their behaviour as the lockdown continues and actually whether people are um, b- being able to comply with the regulations and for how long. 
So what has your research found out so far about how people are coping with the coronavirus pandemic and this lockdown? It's difficult to be certain at this stage without further follow-up data uh, because it's not, we're not, it's, it's a bit uncertain what we should compare this data to. But it looks like we've got a slight uptick in terms of depression and anxiety. So if you... Um, take the number of people who meet a clinically significant threshold for depression and anxiety, because we're using scales which are designed to measure that threshold. Um, we start the week with about 16 to 17% of people uh, meeting threshold. Um, and we end the week with people in the early 20s uh, meeting threshold. Previous studies find about 15%, something like that. Um, but nonetheless, we're seeing certain groups which are clearly more vulnerable and more affected. And it won't surprise anyone to know what those groups are. So people with pre-existing conditions uh, and people with young children at home seem to be particularly struggling. Um, and it's not difficult to understand why that is. And also people who are financially affected. Now, when we surveyed, the first financial effects were only beginning to be felt. But we did ask people if they'd lost income and that was quite a predictor of psychological symptoms. So we may well see a much bigger effect for that going on. One slightly surprising thing, it might you might think, is that older people are not are actually more resilient than younger people. So people under 35 are showing more symptoms than people over 65. So is people's mental state affecting their behaviour in terms of adhering to guidelines to reduce the spread of the virus and things like panic buying? Uh, we had a quite amusing uh, kind of discovery as we designed the questionnaire because we piloted it the week before, went out to 100 people in the population. And we asked people, um, are you stockpiling? And we well, a list of things. Everybody said no. OK. And then we thought, well, maybe we've not asked the question in the right way. So then we asked people, um, have you bought more than you would normally buy of? And we had actually uh, some reports of modest degrees of stockpiling with some variability, about 25% to 30%, I can't remember the exact figure, hadn't done it at all, but everybody else admitted to doing it to some degree. So there was a bit of panic buying overstating it, but there was a bit of stockpiling uh, in the early days. And that's not entirely irrational as well, when you think about it. The problem with stockpiling is in itself, it is transmitted a bit like a virus. So you can go to the supermarket and think, I'm not going to do this ridiculous thing, which is buy stuff which I don't need right at this moment, because that's what panicky people do. You then get there and see that there are only three toilet rolls left in the toilet roll hour. So what do you do? You go, well, I better buy those because there'll be none left. So and that's not irrational. It's a kind of rational response to the particular situation. But you can see how the whole stockpiling thing itself is like a contagion. It spreads. But that seems to have settled down, we think. Uh, certainly, you know, just I think most people I'm talking to are saying that when they go into the supermarkets, it's not too bad at the moment. Um, whether that's related to mental health and whether the behavior is related to mental health, at the moment, we don't know. We will be able to find out from the longitudinal data, and that will be a very interesting thing. So it will be interesting to know whether people who are more depressed are the people who find it more difficult 
to comply with the advice of government. I personally wouldn't find that surprising if it were true, because depressed people are, do. That's you know one of the features of depression. It's difficult becomes more difficult to do stuff which is difficult. So we will be able to, we, we will find out the answer to that, but we don't know the answer to it at the moment. You know, these sort of psychological responses to this situation are completely normal for humans. You know, it's probably quite a functional response in some ways. Um, so just so that nobody thinks that the whole world's, world is, you know, um, going to be ill, it's um, it's perfectly normal to have these, these responses. Um, secondly, um, in terms of motivating behaviour, I think that if somebody, say, who is depressed, um, I think their, their motivation will probably be lower. So, And we know that motivation is affected a lot by um, our emotional state and our understanding of the instructions, for example. So I think, yeah, um, just building on what, what Richard was saying that um, mental health has a has a, a huge impact on our behaviour, but we will we'll know more about that interaction as we go along. And how has everything that you found so far compared to what you were expecting to find? That's quite a difficult question because I um, I don't know what I was expecting to find. This all happened very very quickly. What I'm expecting is that people will different groups will cope in different ways. Some people might actually do better. One of the things which is going around on in this country at the moment is there's a lot of connections being formed. Bizarrely, as we separate off from each other, there's been a lot of social connections formed, a lot of help groups being formed, a lot of neighbourhood groups being formed. And we know from past research that the extent to which you feel that you belong to a neighbourhood and to the extent to which you feel that you can trust people in your neighbourhood is highly protective in terms of your mental health response to some kind of crisis. But there will be some groups who are going to be especially vulnerable. My guess at the moment, it's the ones I mentioned earlier on. There'll be people with kids at home who are under very special uh, stress. I guess single parents in particular. There'll be people who can't make those social connections for one reason or another. Uh, they don't live in a neighbourhood where people do help each other. There'll be people who um, have pre-existing conditions or there'll be people with past mental health difficulties. And what we might find is that there are particular groups which really struggle. And in a way, that's kind of the important thing to know because, you know, we're not going to be able to provide mental health resources for the entire population, unless it's going to be difficult to do that. But we might be able to, in future of pandemics, think in advance which groups are going to be most vulnerable and figure out how to help deliver help to those people. I, the, our results show that people have generally have the capability and the opportunity to perform these um, kind of protective behaviours in terms of um, um, social distancing and hygienic practices. So I guess... Um, I expected I, I expected to find that based on past research that, that I mentioned earlier about people knowing what it is that they should be doing. Um, so I guess in terms of what I'm expecting to find um, in later waves is that I guess that the the problem or the the thing that might stop people 
um, over time is kind of the mo- keeping up the motivation to perform these behaviors and to keep because it's such a cost and it's such a big change to people's lives so um, I think we'd be looking at um, thinking about how we can motivate people to um, carry on these behaviors in in terms of um, designing interventions to um, improve motivation so as a, a final point I guess what can people be doing at this time to protect their mental health and stay motivated and continue these behaviors so first thing to say is that there is actually some quite good advice available about that on the public health England website which people can look at but I can summarize in a way what the main points are the very simple things this is not rocket science psychology in a way so first of all is to Keep regular cycles, regular rhythms in your life. So sleep tends to, when people uh, have the structure taken away from the life, uh, typically people tend to go to bed later and get up later and their sleep cycle shifts. And that is known to be damaging to mental health. It's a sort of quirk of the human brain that we tend to find it difficult to keep to a sleep cycle unless we have regular events which kind of set our internal clock. We use the term zeitgebers for these kind of events. So zeitgeber would be a regular time where you do exercise, a regular time where you're forced to get up because your alarm bell goes and you've got to go to work or a regular time to eat. You can imagine that your body clock has a tendency to run slow and every so often you have to reset it by calibrating it against something. Connect is good. And related to that is helping other people. The more we help other people, the better we feel about ourselves. So when you connect, do, for example, what my neighbours do, which is go onto WhatsApp and say, I'm in the supermarket. Does anybody want me to bring back a pint of milk? Check out your neighbours. Make sure they're okay." So those are very simple things which we can do. If we kind of follow those kind of principles, then all being well, and obviously some people will be affected by stresses, which we've already discussed, but, you know, it should be possible to maintain a positive mental health in these circumstances of somebody who doesn't have additional stresses. Exercise once a day. That's good for your mental health, preferably in green space, but always maintaining social distance. Um, and to that, I would like to add um, to imp- improve motivation. Um, Things like breaking down the behaviours so that they, they're easy to do. So washing hands, um, when you get back in from when you go, if you go out um, to make things easy so that you can actually achieve those things. Um, harness social support um, so that there are not, so you, you, you start building those norms around, um, around behavior. Um, give, give reminders to yourself and your family, say, washing your hands, put a note up near the sink, put your soap out, make sure you've got all the capability to do that. Um, Try and think about um, integrating these sort of protective behaviours in your routine and plan to do that every day by yourself or your family, with your family. And... um, I can't remember what else. Um, I think the final thing to say is about practicing compassion, self-compassion, 
and compassion for others because we're going to need a lot of that I think to uh, to cope with the the isolation. A huge thanks again to Richard and Jilly for speaking to us on Coronavirus Examined. We'll also be including links to any relevant research or blog posts in the show notes for this episode. Coronavirus Examined is a podcast series from the University of Sheffield. It's presented by me, Alicia Shepherd, and edited and produced by Harry Clulo and Tommy Wilson. To find out more about the University of Sheffield's research around coronavirus, head to sheffield.ac.uk forward slash research forward slash coronavirus.